Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, uh, what are some causes of torticollis? There are many different causes, but what can cause kind of when they're they're like looking to one side and everything, what can cause that? So you can have congenital muscular torticollis. Um, they can be traumatic related, um, ophthalmologic related, vestibular, meaning like the, uh, um, the balance uh, mechanism within the brain, um, or it could be due to a tumor pushing on the neck and causing the neck to turn in such a way. And so um, those ones, they des- they deserve some uh, advanced imaging similar to the CT scans. And then if you see something uh, abnormal on the CT scans, you can always uh, go to an MRI, especially if you're concerned about something like a, uh, a tumor. Um, and then what's the uh, initial treatment for the congenital muscular torticollis? Yeah. So initially this is going to be like, you know, stretching. So this is going to be passive stretching. Um, that's going to be the first thing you're going to do for congenital muscular, um, torticollis. And so if this being like a, a year and they, you know, you've tried extensive non-op, you can kind of treat this with the release of the sternocleinoid mastoid, um, muscle. Uh, so you can release that, but again, congenital muscular torticollis, you're going to treat that with passive stretching. Now is a, is, C2 to C3 pseudo subluxation, a normal finding in pediatric patients. I, yes, because it's a pseudo uh, subluxation, it can be a normal incidental finding in pediatric patients. And um, it's one of those things that you, you want to pay attention to that spinal laminal line. And it can also be just related to the overall size of the pediatric, um, head in relation to the spine and so if their head is seated on a backboard and they don't have a pediatric specific uh backboard like we talked about earlier in our pediatric session section for trauma um they can it can look like they have a pseudo subluxation on c23 because their head is just too big <laughs> so yeah um, what is considered uh, congenital cervical stenosis and what's the treatment for it so this is when your canal diameter is just going to be less than 10 millimeters. And so if they're, if they're asymptomatic, like most things you observe, but if they're symptomatic, you do surgery. Um, you got to open that area up a little bit more, but again, congenital cervical stenosis. This is when the canal diameter is less than 10 millimeters. And, uh, and you're going to treat this, uh, if they're asymptomatic, you're just going to observe. Now, moving forward, I think we've, we've done pediatric spine. I think that is the, the rest of the spine until we get to, uh, we may get some spine met stuff in, in the, in the oncology section of this, but we've done most of the spine. Um, and now we're moving to the pediatric hip. Um, so 
what is the most common uh, disorder uh, of the hip in children? That's going to be developmental dysplasia or DDH. And um, the left hip, uh, for whatever reason, is most commonly affected. I don't really know why, but that's just what they have found. And there's a multifactorial uh, kind of cause uh, etiology from this. And there's no real like one thing is necessarily more common than the others. Um, but that it's thought that the uh, the dysplasia has been formed because there's just a lack of that pressure of the femoral head pushing into the acetabulum. And so what are some of the risk factors for it? Yep. So breach presentation, uh, definitely know that. I've seen that many times in a whole bunch of different questions. So no, breach presentation is going to be a risk factor for DDH. Um, if you're female, if you're firstborn, or if you have a family history, but really concentrate on breach presentation. Uh, and then it's going to kind of be associated with like kind of that, this whole intrauterine packaging disorders, right? So like patients that have DDH, um, sometimes these patients will have like congenital knee dislocations or metatarsis adductus. So those are some things that may be kind of associated a little bit with, with DDH. So this kind of falls into that realm of like packaging disorders. Um, so what are some physical exam findings seen in DDH? You may see decreased abduction, which is a uh, kind of a sensitive test uh, to detect it. Um, and then other uh, tests you're going to perform, and really it should be performed on every newborn uh, physical exam. Um, and this is usually done by kind of general practitioners or by the OB when the baby's initially born, but you're going to do things like the Galeazzi test, the Ortolani and the Barlow. And basically the Galeazzi test is the uh, baby is flat on their back. You bend their knees uh, up to about 90 degrees or a little bit past 90 degrees. And uh, you look at the height of their knees. And if one knee is higher than the other, then that may indicate that one of the hips is uh, either congenitally dislocated or there's some sort of developmental dysplasia that's allowing that hip to sublux out of place and not be at the same knee height uh, for the compared to their contralateral hip. And then the Ortolani and Barlow tests are um, more dynamic type physical exam remover uh, maneuvers that um, you uh, the Barlow is. Uh, is I, I think of it, the Barlow, you push back and the Ortolani, um, because it's an O, you you put it the hip back into socket um, because it you're putting the hip back into that socket or that O for the acetabulum. So Barlow B, you, the hip is able to be pushed back out of the hip. So it starts off reduced, you push back and the hip sublux or dislocates the Ortolani, you abduct the femur and you are able to uh, reduce the hip or put it back into that O-shaped acetabulum. Um, and what are some of the diagnostic imaging tests to evaluate for the DDH? Yeah. So when somebody is from zero to six months old, the main thing is going to be um, ultrasound because the uh, acidic nucleus have not appeared. Those appeared around six months old. Um, so a normal alpha angle, again, they're going to show you the ultrasound. So you just need to 
you just Google like ultrasound DDH and you're going to just need to know the, um, uh, how these look, um, like the, where the femoral head is and where the acetabulum is. And so be really familiar with that because I've seen, they just show the pictures and you're supposed to know, like, you know, where the femoral head is, you're supposed to be able to uh, identify if it's a hip effusion or not. Um, so you need to be able to, um, to analyze the ultrasound. But so at zero to six months old, you're going to um, get ultrasounds and the normal um, alpha angle at four to six weeks is greater than 60. And so the alpha angle is, is a, a line along the iliac and the acetabular roof. And this is kind of showing you how much of that, uh, of that femoral head is, is, is covered. So again, zero to six months, you're getting an ultrasound and um, greater than 50% um, uh, of the femoral head uh, diameter is within the acetabulum. That's kind of what you want to see. Uh, you want to see that femoral head covered within the acetabulum. So in patients that have DDAs, you'll see that uh, the femoral head won't be as covered um, by the acetabulum. And so after six months of age, you're getting an AP of the pelvis. And again, after six months, you get this because that ossific nucleus appears. And there are a couple of different lines that you need to know. Um, one is Hillinger's line. Um, I just remember H for horizontal. So this is going to be the horizontal line that goes through the triradiate cartilage. Um, P is going to be Perkins line. Um, and then P for perpendicular. That's how I remember Perkins line. And so the Perkins line is going to be perpendicular to Helen Griner's line. And this is going to be at the lateral um, acetabulum edge. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to rock content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. And the next thing is going to be Shenton, Shenton's line. Uh, we talked about this before, uh, I think, in our trauma section when we're talking about hips and hip dislocations. And, and a lot of you should be familiar with this. If not, just Google um, just Google like AP pelvis DDH lines and you'll see Hillengrinder's line, Perkins line, Shenton's line. And what Shenton's line is, this is a line like a kind of a curved line along the medial border of the femoral neck and the superior border of the obturator frame. And, and you want that to be a nice line that, that intersects and the, the curved part continues. Uh, but in DDH, if you have some, um, some hip uh, displacement or femoral head migration um, superiorly, that line may be disrupted. Next thing you look at is you look at the acetabular um, index uh, and and again, main, main thing to do is to Google this um, because that is going to, I know we're trying to explain a lot of this right now over, over podcast, but the acetabular index, if you get that Hillengriner's line and you take a line, um, again, Hillengriner is going to be the horizontal line going through the triradiate cartilage and you get another line kind of going right off the lateral um, border of the acetabulum, that angle is going to be the acetabular index, um, which is normally 
less than 25, but it's going to be greater than 30 uh, when you have patients that have dysplasia. You think about it, the acetabulum isn't covering like it needs to. So the angle is bigger, you have less, uh, a little bit of less coverage. And the last thing is going to be the center edge um, angle. So the center edge angle, you get a line from the kind of middle of femoral head going anteriorly, and then you get a line going um, laterally uh, right um, to the to the edge of the acetabulum. And that, um, that center edge angle um, should be a little bit greater than 25 degrees by the age of six. So if somebody comes in um, and they have like their Shenton line is off, they has an acetabular index of 40 and their um, lateral center edge angle is 10 degrees, then this is going to clue you towards this is some hip dysplasia. Um, so what is the typical treatment of um, developmental hip dysplasia? A vast majority of them can be treated uh, without surgery. Um, and then it just depends on the uh, age at which uh, their presentation is. And so the younger patients, the zero to six month old, uh, because they are smaller, uh, they can be treated in a pavlic harness. And you want to make sure that the uh, pavlic harness is not uh, flexed greater than uh, 90 degrees at the hip because then they can develop uh, quad uh, neuropraxia. Um, so yeah, pavlic harness for the zero to six month old, six to 18 month old, they're a little bit bigger. And those patients may have already developed scar tissue in the medial acetabulum. So they may actually require an open reduction with spica casting. Sometimes it can be a closed reduction where you do uh, fluoroscopic arthrogram. And if they have a concentric reduction, then you don't need to open it. You can just place them into a spica cast and then you're just following them with serial x-rays. Um, and then the greater than three year old patients uh, if it's been missed for the first three years or something else happened due to trauma or whatever, and they've developed acetabular dysplasia, those ones may require uh, either a femoral or a pelvic osteotomy to um, reposition their hip, kind of bring that hip back over the top uh, of that femoral head to contain it more and held in place with screws and then also placed into a spica cast after that. And so um, what are some of the, uh, I guess I kind of went over one of the complications for a pavlic harness with that femoral nerve palsy, but what are some of the other complications you can see? Yep. Like you just mentioned, one is a femoral nerve palsy when you have an ex excessive flexion. And uh, like you said, like you need to know the strap. So I've seen a question where they, and obviously this isn't on the boards, this is from like ortho bullets and stuff, um, where they just point to the straps and you need to know that the anterior straps are used for flexion and the posterior straps are used for abduction. So again, if you're using the pavlic harness, you can get the femoral nerve palsy. If you have uh, the straps and excessive abduction, you can get osteonecrosis and one of the other things is actually going to be pavlic harness disease. Um, so what this is, is that you can actually get, uh, if they're there in excessive abduction for a, a, a too long, you can actually get um, a def deformity in the posterior superior acetabular rim. Um, and this can be seen um, even, um, this can be seen if the hip doesn't reduce within three to four weeks. So you stop the harness. So again, hip doesn't reduce within three to four weeks and they start to get um, that 
deformity in the posterior superior acetabulum. That's what we call pavlic harnic disease. So you stop the stop the harness. So what are some, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about some of the treatments for DDH and you talked about closed versus open reduction. Um, what are some of the possible blocks to an attempted closed reduction? Let's say in a 12 year, 12 month old, I'm sorry, 12 month old kid with DDH. The primary one I, that they're going to test you on is, I, I believe it's the pulvinar. Basically, pulvinar is just a term for uh, scar tissue and not scar tissue in the sense of like a post-traumatic scar tissue. It's just that space medial uh, within the acetabulum fills up with a kind of a dense fibrotic sort of tissue that prevents the femoral head from being fully reduced. And then other ones are like the iliopsoas tendon, um, the adductor tendons, a hypertrophy joint capsule, uh, the ligamentum teres or the transverse acetabular ligament or something called an inverted limbus. And um, how you're going to confirm the reduction is a hip arthrogram uh, done under fluoroscopy while you do the closed versus open reduction of the hip and then um, what you want to see is less than five millimeters of, uh, dye that pools medial to the femoral head. If you're still getting a lot of dye in that medial space, then something is preventing a reduction of the femoral head and you need to consider opening that patient up, uh, and clearing out the acetabulum. And, um, I, I talked about it before, but if it's a, if it's an older patient, like a, uh, uh, 10 year old or, uh, something like that, and they have a unilateral hip dislocation, um, what are some of the things you're going to, uh, treat for these, uh, kind of three-year-old to 10-year-old patients? Yeah. So you can do, and you know, one of the, the treatment is going to be open reduction, like you mentioned earlier, and plus or minus femoral shortening osteotomy, depending on uh, the, you know, the soft tissues and everything, you know, just again, the unilateral hip is being dislocated. Uh, in some cases, you may need a pelvic osteotomy. Um, and in patients that actually have bilateral dislocations and they're greater than age six, you may actually kind of leave those alone if they're asymptomatic. Um, I remember I got a question on that at some point i was like oh no you gotta reduce them both and do osteotomies on both sides and it was the answer was just leave it alone <laughs> just observe them <laughs> and i was like okay all right i guess i'm a little aggressive here um but um all right so that is kind of typical treatment for unilateral hip dislocation what are some of the different types of reconstructive osteotomies used for ddh uh this one is uh maybe testable. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily going to test you on the difference between a shelf or a gons or something else sort of osteotomy. They may just say, uh, give you a picture of an x-ray and ask um, uh, closed reduction or uh, osteotomy or whatever. And so it's still good to know. So there's um, for the redirection type of osteotomies, there's a a uh, single innominate uh, osteotomy, which is called a Salter, and it basically hinges on the pubic symphysis. Um, there's a triple innominate or called a steel osteotomy, which is a Salter plus a superior and inferior rami cut. And what that um, kind of does is it, it just redirects the acetabulum. 
then the most common one and the one that they're likely going to want you to pick on a test if they do ask you to choose what type of osteotomy is necessary is going to be a GONS uh, periacetabular osteotomy or PAO. Um, that is more useful in the skeletally mature patients with closed triradiate cartilage. Um, you leave the posterior column intact, but you perform an osteotomy uh, superior to the acetabulum along the um, superior pubic rami, uh, inferior pubic rami, and then along the posterior acetabulum, but you still leave a sleeve of the posterior column intact and you are rotating the acetabulum uh, laterally and anteriorly to provide improved coverage over the femoral head and then fixing it with three to four screws through the iliac wing. Um, and then the uh, kind of reshaping sort of osteotomies or the acetabuloplasties are the Pemberton, the Dega, and the San Diego osteotomies. And that's, these, these osteotomies are really more right around the acetabulum itself and are kind of pushing the acetabulum in a way that it's reshaping the uh, actual spherical nature of the acetabulum rather than just shifting the native acetabulum to a, a different area like the redirectional osteotomies. And then um, for some of these that uh, are not, you're not able to do like a Gans PAO or a Salter or a Pemberton, they, they are in need of a salvage type osteotomy. What are these osteotomies? Yeah, these are the questions I like. I really hope they don't ask us, man. <laughs> you know, like, this is the one topic I was like, man, you're just trying to remember these are awful. But anyways, well, some of these salvage osteotomies, you have that kind of Chiari uh, and self and shelf osteotomies. And what these rely on or these procedures actually rely on fibrocartilaginous metaplasia of interposed capsule. Um, so these are going to be your, your more salvage ones. So your again, your Chiari and your shelf osteotomies, uh, those rely on the fibrocartilaginous metaplasia of interposed capsule. Now, um, continuing on on the, on this on our pediatric hip talk here, what is the operative treatment for congenital coxa vera? So coxa vera, um, for those of you that are still kind of getting what is varus and valgus at the hip, uh, what does it look like? Um, the easiest way for me to think about it is a very valgus hip is essentially a femoral head that's sitting right on top of the femoral shaft so that the neck is almost vertical. That's a very valgus hip. A very varus hip means that the neck angle is going to be more like a 90 degree angle. And so the treatment for congenital coxavera or a uh, femoral neck shaft angle of 90 degrees or less, um, you're going to do a valgus type osteotomy, most likely with a blade plate where you measure out how much correction you want. You cut out that wedge of bone. Um, you bring the lateral cortex down uh, so that the neck angle can be more superior and then you fix it in place with a blade plate that's the most common way to fix these um, and that's the yeah, that's that valgus osteotomy um, very 
uh, rarely, but in cases of uh, DDH, like we talked about femoral osteotomies, um, a femoral osteotomy that's used for DDH is actually a varus type osteotomy because you want to bring that femoral head closer to the acetabulum. And so you actually want to make their neck shaft angle less uh, so that the femoral head has a higher propensity to sit in the acetabulum. So varus osteotomies are primarily used for DDH, whereas valgus osteotomies are used for congenital coxivera.